Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161 CT178, The New Paganism, from the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 288, April the 5th, 1993. Douglas Murray, Otto Scott, Mark Rushduni, and I will now discuss the new paganism. The word new is important in that title. The old paganism, such as you had among the Greeks and the Romans and various ancient cultures and civilizations, was clearly a form of humanism, but it did believe in a fundamental order of sorts. Religion was a branch of the state, and the state as the divine human order sought to enforce some kind of law structure within society. Now, of course, the old paganism had a problem. It became apparent after a while to people that the gods were non-existent, they were mythological, that the state officials were not gods, that Caesar was a man like anyone else. And little by little, cynicism set into every one of these older paganisms. And they ended up in lawlessness. They ended up with every kind of perversity made into an acceptable form of behavior. The new paganism is very different in that it begins with the premise that there is no good nor evil. That there is no authority of any kind, that every man is his own God, that every man can do as he pleases, and the state should simply guarantee him the freedom to do that. The new paganism, for example, is militantly against any restriction upon the natural, unconverted man. Every kind of behavior he wants to practice should be acceptable. Judge William O. Douglas of some 40 years or so ago actually felt that anything natural was valid so that the cannibalism of uh, natives should not be criticized or interfered with that the various practices, polyandry in Tibet and other practices elsewhere, all had their validity. When you believe, as Clark Kerr formulated it, in a multiverse, you deny the fact of a universe, of a God, of one law, one faith, one baptism, as Paul put it, that there is 
a single order that is right and all variations from it are wrong. So the new paganism says that everything is acceptable that man can do other than Christianity. The Marquis de Sade held that the only crime was Christianity. That whether it was murder, rape, incest, cannibalism, everything should be legalized. And we are legally moving in the direction of the Marquis de Sade's plan for society. Douglas? Well, as you were saying that, I was thinking, uh, you know, how, how do these ideas propagate? And I think Hollywood, the uh, motion picture industry, uh, is now the great celebrator and communicator of paganism, and they yes. spread it worldwide. Uh, and this is a fairly recent phenomenon. You know, they started out uh, being a, a dream factory, an entertainment medium, but now they feel that uh, it's uh, that, that they have a mission uh, to spread paganism. Uh, they pick the worst of what society does rather than the best, and they attack what society holds sacred. They have, they have attacked Christianity as being uh, consistently as Christians as being subhuman, and uh, any ideas Christian as being uh, subversive. Well, it came down from the top. You brought up Nietzsche before. And Nietzsche lived at the time of Wagner, who in his operas went to the gods of the Teutons. And it was the same period of time that the great uh, historian of the Renaissance, Jacob Burckhardt, spoke about. Burkhardt was a professor in Switzerland at the time, and this is now the 1870s. He predicted the rise of what he called the terrible simplifiers, and the time when the Louvre would be sacked, when the museums would be sacked and destroyed. And in 1917, another generation or more later, we had Schrangler, who talked about the decline of the West at a time when the West still looked secure, when we still had uh, men were still wearing suits and ties and using civil language, and when the institutions were apparently secure and so forth. So at the very top, now William James in his lectures at Edinburgh shortly after the turn of the century on the varieties of religious experience in which he went through all the different projections that people had concept of God. One's concept of God, you know, is a revelation of himself. One sees God as himself enlarged, as the tendency. And he ended what was really a remarkable work 
by saying, in effect, that uh, there was no particular reason to assume that there's only one God. There could just as well be many gods. He went in for polytheism, and he said this was just as logical. So it's no surprise to know that he was not a happy man. But the whole point of this is that from... Really, if we, if we go into it in any depth, the Unitarians began to rise around the 1820s and 1830s in England out of the deists, offshoots of the deists. So on the very top, there was a loss of faith. And the loss of faith today is radiated and carried on by the movies and so forth, but these are 10th-rate minds that we're talking about in the movies. This is the street level. These are uh, the characters that can barely wear clothes if you see photographs of them. They can't hardly speak English. Uh, they give you these drug-induced hallucinations that they call movies. And this has been a steady, rather precipitous decline intellectually from the, from the highest levels down to the bottom, that nothing makes any sense. And I think Rush is right on target. He said, this, this is different than the old paganism. This is anarchistic paganism. Religion in this United States, according to the United States Supreme Court, religion can be even mentioning God. That's establishment of religion. When we have a Supreme Court that calls a, a kindergarten prayer the establishment of religion, and now you know a towering structure that constitutes a religion. And when these people will take a piece of doggerel as religion, we're looking at the complete collapse, intellectual collapse of standards. And this is the modern paganism. It's letting judges, it's letting men decide what the law is. And what you're allowed to think. Don't forget that. Yes. Because if a student isn't allowed to mention God in class, neither is the professor. And outside the class, in public debate, we're being told that if you express your religious beliefs, you are forcing your religious beliefs upon other people, and that's an offense. The mere expression of your faith is being outlawed. Now this is paganism in action because nothing makes a pagan angrier than to be told that there is a God. In schools it's popular now to have class discussions. And a lot of Christians who, who send their kids to these schools are... Uh, under the false illusion that, well, my child can tell what they believe and talk about their Christian faith in class, and they're encouraged to do so, and they think that somehow this is, this means that, that what, what's going on in the class is, is, is fine. And what they don't realize is that the whole purpose of class discussions is to say, nobody's right and nobody's wrong. Therefore, everybody should get their ideas out in the open. And the whole idea of this, the socialization is 
to let's blend all these ideas and let's see where we all agree. Let's see where we can all agree on something and let's blend all these ideas into something that's good for everybody. It's not to say, well, here's someone who might have the best idea or here's someone who's right and here's someone that's wrong. We blend it. And when nobody's right and nobody's wrong, then the only thing left is what's prag- the pragmatic approach. And on, a, on a social level, the pragmatic approach, if there's no right and wrong, is a statist approach. Because somebody's going to have to say, this is what it, the way it's going to be. And so truth ends up being established for us. Public schools have become cafeteria learning. You just walk down the line, you pick out what you what tastes good. Well, the idea that there's no right or wrong was expressed at a party I attended in San Francisco years ago. Most of the people were Berkeley people. And this one woman, the question of rights came up, and she said, well, there aren't any rights, there's only uh, what's allowed. There's no such thing as rights. She was a Marxist. I said, well, if I were to accept that line of reasoning, you have no right to speak because I have the power to knock your teeth out. (laughs) And you're only speaking because I let you. You have no right to speak. And she didn't like that, which was her own idea. Mm-hmm. Did she leave with all her teeth out of the- Yeah, I, I didn't knock her teeth out, but I, I could. <laughs> well, one of the most interesting figures of this century, who is highly touted as a liberator and a great writer, but actually he was a very pathetic little man. Henry Miller. Little in character, little in his timidity and fearfulness. He wrote as though he were a great, bold lover, but he was a pathetic figure. Very pathetic. His uh, one wife whom he was intensely in love with humiliated him at every turn and she was a lesbian. She actually brought her girlfriend right into the house. At any rate, Henry Miller was a champion of the new paganism. He was against all law, all morality, all trace of Christianity. And he believed that what we needed was a time of the assassins, as he called it. A time when there would be a total war against all history, against the past, against all knowledge, when libraries would disappear, when the ability to read and to write would disappear, and education would disappear, and there would be perhaps 200 years of barbarism, then he felt mankind would be reborn because it would be free. It would have no memory of Christianity, of God, of anything like that. And then he would have a free people. Well, 
That dream of Miller's has been echoed by a great many people in the modern age. And uh, it is an example of the new paganism. The desire to live beyond good and evil in a world where there is no God nor any echo of him. And of course it's an illusion. It is impossible. But in the process it's going to create a great deal of distress, death, and general disorder. My experience with these kind of free thinkers is that they seem to be under the illusion that they will continue to exercise the rights that they don't believe in. Yes. That the other guy is going to take care of them. It's like that woman I told you about. Mm -hmm. That the other guy is going to be fair. I remember interviewing a, a fellow who got a terribly long sentence, a criminal, and he was in a state of absolute foaming indignation over the district attorney who had promised him a short sentence if he would plead guilty, and then they gave him a long sentence. And I said, well, why would you, of all people, expect somebody else to be honest? Mm-hmm. What did he say? He didn't answer. But he was very indignant at the fact that honest men weren't what they were supposed to be. He expected the other guy to be honorable, while he himself had no honor. And this seems to run like a thread through these kind of people. Yes. The ungodly want the rest of the world to be godly. I think Voltaire was very honest there because he refused to allow his friends to discuss their unbelief in the presence of his servants. He'd silence them when the servants were going to come in with refreshments because he said, if they believe there is no God, then they will slit my throat and rob me of everything because there's no judge beyond the universe to judge them in due time. I remember that, and he was quite right. Yes. He was quite right. And you you do better with primitives. You do better with the people of Brazil. Bad as they are, they have forms of worship. And we have savages, we have pagans that are worse than the savages. And Dahmer, Jeffrey Dahmer, there is a nice, handsome faggot for you. The book has already been written about him. He's in the state of Wisconsin, which has no capital punishment. His victims are dead. Mm -hmm. Well, it seems like all these people are trying to find way of excusing their behavior like kids coming up with excuses for reasons not to uh, to behave with any discipline 
And none of them want any discipline at all. Well, yet they're living in a country which is getting more uh, regulated by the minute. They may be, they may have some sort of an illusion. I think the basis of the illusion is the uh, confusion between license and liberty. I was about to make that same point, yes. License is what the state offers when it takes over. Any people who accept that bargain, that we will let you sexually misbehave and in the meantime we will control you in every other respect, winds up, locked up. Every age of tyranny has been preceded or accompanied by radical sexual license. This was true in Rome. It was true before that in Greece. It was true with the Renaissance, an age of tyrants. And it's again true. It preceded Nazi Germany. That's right. Most emphatically, we are not told about the horrifying conditions of moral degeneracy that marked the Weimar Republic. The Weimar Republic is the closest modern parallel to the United States. Yes. The arguments against abortion, the uh, coat hanger argument, the argument that it is the compassionate who want women to have abortions, so forth. Practically, the whole thing. I have in my library some books on the Weimar Republic and its social aspects, and it's, uh, as you say, pretty terrible. And look what it happened, what it ran into, yes. what it ended in, what it culminated in. It built the ground for Hitler. And we imported some of the very same people who had helped popularize that moral depravity in the films of Germany into the United States. Well, Billy Wilder and many others, they used to spend six months of the year in Berlin and six months of the year in Los Angeles. Well, Marlene Dietrich. Marlene Dietrich. She never succeeded in a film here. And yet she was highly touted, subsidized, because she was a missionary for the new paganism. She was, well, she was one of their exemplars. That's the bargain. The bargain is you can let down the sexual barriers and people mistake that for liberty. So that's the reason I think we're free now. But in every serious aspect, they gradually corner you. And the Weimar Republic and the French Revolution and the Renaissance were all persecutors of the Christians. Christians, they seem to be drawn to the Christianity like a moth to the flame. I have two, I have a copy of the New York Review of Books, which is one of my masochistic exercises, which I read. The articles are long and turgid and pains in the ass, really. You know from the first sentence what the conclusion is going to be, and the conclusion is several thousand words down the road. And there are two, uh, two advertisements in this latest issue. One is called The Son of Jesus. 
And I've forgotten the title of the... Oh, yes, the other is a big elaborate ad for the gospel according to Q. Mm -hmm. Another piece of blasphemy. They cannot seem to leave Christianity alone. Now, you don't see advertisements of books by Christians attacking Judaism. You never have. I can't even think of any. And I'm a very widely read man. And yet the books against Christianity keep piling out. It was interesting uh, the other day to see on PBS something about these jungle tribes. And I turned in late and I never caught where they were. They could not count beyond two. Oh, goodness. They'd count one, two, many. (laughs) They were extremely primitive. No concept of advancing themselves nor any interest in it. It was said that the men would beat their wives, uh, actually burn them at times, and all this was said with reverential tones as though here were these dear primitive peoples who were so superior. Now, that's the kind of thing that marks the new paganism. Any kind of practice anywhere in the world is valid if it is done by pagans. Well, if it's not done by Christians. The big argument against Christians, Christianity, of course, is that it's against the flesh, the sins of the flesh. That's the unforgivable uh, argument at all times. Although how they propagate it, we'll never know. Well, some years ago, in a uh, learned quarterly, I read an article by an historian about Boccaccio and his outlook in the Decameron. How, while the plague was going on, he and these wealthy young men and women, playboys and playgirls, withdrew to a safe place and ridiculed the moral universe, ridiculed Christianity, turned everything that was serious into a joke. And the scholar's point of view was that unless we realize what Boccaccio's goal was, we don't understand the world that ensued, the Renaissance. And we can add that we cannot understand our time because the same mentality is here with us. The stories were not what was uh, most important for Boccaccio. It was the opportunity to get one subtle or not too subtle dig in against the faith. Well, yes. Although I just learned from Bellor's book that we could probably credit Boccaccio with resurrecting Tacitus. And Tacitus was not popular... Well, Tacitus 
to an extent, is held responsible for the uh, Machiavelli. Where Tacitus was writing about Tiberius and the other Caesars in contempt, Machiavelli wrote about them admiringly as epitomes of the prince. And we get this now from our media regarding the attitude of Clinton and Hillary and Shalala and the rest. They're being written about admiringly. And the dominant, the, the manner in which the Democratic Party tried to put all the Republicans in prison during the Reagan and Bush years for the sin of having been elected is admired. The way they run Congress today, you know, they run roughshod over the minority. And just in the last few days, the minority has had such a whipping from its constituents that the minority is standing up and blocking some legislation, and they're horrified because this is all supposed to run one way. Yes. Well, they are determined to make it one run uh, run one way. And uh, to me it's ironic that uh, paganism, the new paganism, is so totally against dissent. And yet it presents itself as the champion of freedom. Freedom, of course, they limit to licentiousness. That's it. That's the end. Yes. There's no other freedom that's worthwhile. Not for them. When uh, Truman Capote, unspeakable but talented, wrote that book In Cold Blood about the two murderers in Kansas who went in and murdered an entire family to no avail because the family had nothing in the house. They were just a farm family who took them in and fed them and treated them kindly and then return were butchered. And Capote wrote this long book very uh, convincingly, In Cold Blood. It's a terrible book to read, but it was well done of its genre. There were a spate of review, spate of letters that went into the New York Times book review in which the majority of the letters assumed that if these two young criminals had slept together, they would have avoided criminality. Unbelievable. We mentioned earlier Nietzsche and his writings, his contempt for truth, his belief that a lie is... (coughs) very often uh, far, far preferable and far more useful than the truth. He also wrote a book entitled Beyond Good and Evil because he did not believe that morality was valid and that morality had to be abolished. Well, I think the political sphere has been a good illustration of uh, Nietzsche's thinking. Our politicians of both parties have been contemptuous of truth, contemptuous of the people. 
And we don't have to look any further than the last two presidents or take the last six or seven to see how casually truth has been dealt with. And this is the new paganism because the new paganism wants us to believe that we now live in an era when things are to be determined scientifically, not morally. And uh, the only time, by the way, I've seen a favorable reference to morality in any political discussion is in a book written, oh, maybe 20 years ago by one historian about Woodrow Wilson and the politics of Woodrow Wilson. Mm. He saw it as an example of the highest kind of morality because, of course, it conformed to the humanistic attitude. Perhaps only in that context will they use the term morality. They used, you're right, they use the term morality whenever there's a policy that they approve. Mm-hmm. And only then. Because morality then becomes confused with their policy. Yes. Normally they are anti-morality. Yes. They want a world that is beyond good and evil. It's part of the uh, degradation of language. Yes. The English, with all their faults, and they have many, are beginning to go the same way. And you find it on the highest levels although they still use their language with more precision than the Americans, they have abandoned the right and wrong to a great extent. What is normal and what is abnormal is beginning to fade into a general libertarian excess so that they will praise an individual, and you notice this in The Spectator, they will praise an individual for all sorts of qualities, although his personal life is unspeakable. Mm-hmm. We think of Nietzsche usually as a philosopher, but Nietzsche saw himself as a philologist. Yes. And uh, it is interesting that one who was a philologist would so debauch language. In terms of that, the third international Webster's followed a Nietzschean premise. It debauched language. Yes. It did it systematically. Yes, it put B.C. down as Bachelor of Chemistry as the first definition. Can you imagine? It's absolutely useless. They're selling it for $19 and nobody's buying it. And now, even... uh, Catholic and Protestant scholars and university presses will not write B.C. It's B.C.E. Before a common era. Yes. yes. Even Notre Dame. Yes. Now, that why the Catholics did this, I don't know. 
what goes on in their mind. Look at what you have to pay for a, an older dictionary. You know, that second edition of Webster's uh, cost me $150. It probably sold new for 20 That was a bargain. Five. No, it sold for a little bit more. I've forgotten now. I have it. $150 for that is a bargain. The last time I spoke to some students from a Catholic university, I think from Georgetown, I'm not sure, was at a Philadelphia Society meeting, and to my astonishment, they were going on in great length about Aristotle. Now, why anyone in this day and age would go on about Aristotle baffles me. When you read Aristotle without any Thomistic ideas in your mind, if you just put them to one side, read Aristotle as a Greek, you find him a very muddle-headed thinker. And our problem is that scholars today, and particular Catholic scholars, see Aristotle through Thomistic eyes. And that's not tenable. It's not tenable at all. It's not tenable at all. I mean, they make fun of uh, the early explorers in the age of exploration under the impression that they didn't know that the world was rounded, and of course they've always known that, on the theory that there was such a thing as a flat earth group. I was taught that in American primary school, and, and uh, I discovered later in life, of course, that that's a total myth. But Aristotle did believe it, and they respect Aristotle. Yeah. It worked for him. <laughs> when I was a student at Berkeley, there was one professor in particular who, in dealing with English drama, had a particular item that he used at least once a semester and sometimes two or three times. He loved to ridicule Christianity. And this uh, particular person who was... Uh, affiliated with the Globe Theatre uh, and sundry other businesses, kept very close records. And he, uh, among other things, had a house of prostitution. And his record book, he'd always begin in the year of our Lord, <laughs> such, <and> such a date. <laughs> well... The students would all laugh and uh, think it was a great story. But there was at least an element of order there. Yes. He knew that he was living in the year of our Lord and that there was a judgment to come. And that's why there was, in spite of the wildness of that era, an element of restraint. Well, they knew when they sinned. Yes. And there is... They knew somebody was watching. Yes. Of course, also, they had the idea in those days that you could repent at the end <laughs> and yes. be saved. 
White in a book that he wrote on the Renaissance Cavalier said that medieval man knew always that the eyes of God were upon him. Whether he believed or not, he knew that. But Renaissance man believed he was on a stage and it was the eyes of man who were upon him. So that what uh, Castiglione wrote in his courtier was if you were a knight and you were in battle you played it safe unless you could see the prince or the king watching and looking in your direction. Then you charged boldly because life is a stage and you have to make sure you do your acting when it counts, when the right person is watching you. Things are in a strange way though altering the people who do not believe that God is watching are learning very with great difficulty that the world is watching and uh, one of the offshoots of licentiousness is of course the abandonment of censorship on what you can write about the dead now recently somebody has written a biography of Kissinger I haven't had the time or the inclination to look into it, but I saw a long review of it by one of the nation's reviewers, and I was very surprised, because apparently the biographer has gone into the details of Kissinger's duplicity. Kissinger was a fellow who would say one thing about Mr. Nixon to Mr. Nixon and lots of other things about Mr. Nixon to other people, and he did that with everyone. He lied consistently all through his public career in Washington. He was the one who authorized the wiretaps on his staff and who lied to the staff about it. And obviously he didn't learn to lie in Washington. He lied long before he got there. So what he has to say about his own background is a lie too. And the reviewer said, in the end, he stands exposed as an evil individual. Yes. And Mr. Kissinger has remained very quiet because he's not dead. Mm -hmm. But he knows better than to say anything. Well, the modern pagan outlook leads to the loss of free speech freedom of press because when you believed that the eyes of God were upon you you also confessed your sins you made no bones about it and when you go back not only to the middle ages but the reformation era and subsequently you find very prominent figures publicly confessing very serious sins I'm very, I remember that when I was a boy I read the uh, the book the autobiography I guess you'd call it the Confessions of Benvenuto Cellini yes and I was I remember at one point he was dragging his mistress across the floor by her hair when he received a summons to, to from the Pope <laughs> and he so described it yeah. Uh, that's the sort of candor which, of course, we do not run into. That's right. Well, you see, uh, you had that kind of 
candor in one of our presidents, uh, Cleveland. Yes, Cleveland was one of our best. Yes, and when he was confronted with the fact that the landlady at the boarding house where he had lived as sheriff in Buffalo, I believe, had had an illegitimate child, he took the responsibility, even though the child was not his, but he said, I uh, was guilty. I was one of the men there who had connections with her, but she was already pregnant. But he supported the child. And the clergy of the country backed him, and he was elected. Now, when you do not believe that the eyes of God are the important thing, but the eyes of man, then you want to silence anything about yourself that it might be discreditable. So you've had a great deal of censorship or an attempt at censorship to prevent other people from knowing because they have replaced God in your thinking. Well, it's not working. No. I mean, we may have lost freedom of speech, but the revelations, and of course because of the laws of libel and slander, you cannot libel the dead in American law. No. And I was shocked. I've been persistently shocked by the revelations about some of our celebrities that come out right after they die. I, I never thought Bernstein was a good conductor. I always thought Bernstein was a, an absolute nonsense, uh, terrible conductor because he distorted every composer's music. But I had no idea that he was a sexual monster as well and a social monster until he died and then suddenly out it comes. The same thing about Malcolm Forbes. I had no idea that Forbes, there was anything wrong with Malcolm Forbes until he died and then suddenly out come these books. Well, with Bernstein, he himself wrote about them before his death. No, I didn't read it. Yes, he uh, wrote about it uh, as though it was creditable to exercise freedom to commit incest and other things. He was a contemptible character. Well, no wonder he was a bad artist. Liberace won a lawsuit against someone who suggested that he was a homosexual. Can you imagine? Was there any ever? <laughs> How could he have won that lawsuit? He must have bribed the judge. Must have been a little old lady from the church. Well, I think we ought to uh, turn our minds now to the problem of how we are to deal with the new paganism. One of the things that I found very encouraging today and some of the reading I was doing was that no movement in the world is growing more rapidly than Christianity. It is not only growing phenomenally here in the United States, but all over the world in every continent. The advance is tremendous, so that the new paganism, as well as the old in some continents, has to obliterate Christianity in the next generation or two, or it will be plowed under by the rising tide of Christian faith. 
Well, we know that this government is doing its best to outlaw Christianity from yes. American public life. But we also know something about both Christianity and paganism. I have a book, I think you probably have it too, Pagans and Christians. Yes. And it's an it's a interesting book in spots, mm -hmm. kind of, kind of uh, yes. scrambled. Yes. Uh, but there is one uh, section which I found intriguing, and that is that there is a myth to the effect that pagan Rome, for instance, was sexually free and that everything was permissible, which was untrue. If men went to a brothel, they had the same feelings of shame later that they would have today or that they would have in Christianity because it was a step downward. It wasn't real. And at no time have individuals lived without a conscience. They've always had a conscience. If they do something that's disgraceful or, dis or something that's dishonorable, they feel it. They know it. Sin brings its own immediate punishment. And the new pagans, in their idea that they can escape the concept of sin, are doomed to disappointment because they do not. Even when they write about it and they brag about it, uh, what's his name? Allen, the movie producer, the, the film fellow, Woody Allen. I mean, whatever his real name is, we'll never know. Uh, Woodrow, huh? I don't believe that. Uh, he is now paying the penalty, and he's not proud of the exposure. He's not giving any speeches in favor of his liberty. And the new pagans are learning what the old pagans learned, that it leads to misery. Yes. And he's made a lot of movies along those lines that, you know, that freedom of, to do what you want without any consequences. Yes. I've never seen one. Uh, somebody asked me once uh, if I'd read the book Our Crowd. I said, I don't have to. I come from New York. I know that crowd. Uh, and it's not our crowd. It's their crowd. Well, I usually can't get more than about halfway through one because it reminds me of the Buster Keaton movies where Buster Keaton stars. He's the producer, the director, <laughs> writes the story. He's the prop man, sweeps the floor the whole nine yards, and you get sick of that after a while. But all you can stand is about half a movie. Well, the... Uh, you know, the thrust of multi multiculturalism in this country kind of runs into a problem where you got people of widely divergent religious backgrounds because how do you punish people according to one particular code of justice uh, when you've got people in this country who don't think it's a crime uh, to do a particular thing and you've got other people that do consider it a crime? How do you have an, an even-handed code of justice? one of the problems that multiculturalism uh, creates. The, um, you know, you've got people, Islamic people, uh, all of the various religions in this country that's, uh, you know, supposed to be a melting pot and it's not melting together. 
I think we probably should close the borders for 50 years or so while we undergo a period of digestion. Never had a problem of multiculturalism when the peoples we let in were Christian. That's true. They very quickly uh, adjusted to life here. I spent some years at the settlement house in New York City. Not, I spent some days at a settlement house in New York City that dealt with immigrants. And the history of that, I was told by the director, was that one wave after another of immigrants would come here and within five to seven years they would move out of the neighborhood and another wave would come in because it took them only that long to get ahead, to adapt, to fit in with churches and other groups in communities into which they moved. That was the American story. Well, we had a different immigration uh, system. The new system enacted in 1965, which was led through uh, enactment by... Senator Ted Kennedy left an open door for all the relatives of those accepted and also they changed the quota from Northern Europe and even from Southern Europe from all white Europe they shrank the quota and they opened the gates wide to Asians and blacks now, this was a deliberate policy by the government of the United States to change the racial and religious composition of the country. And none of the people who voted for it, and none of the speeches that were made in its favor, and none of the promises that were made that it would not do that have ever been resurrected or published. And we have in this country, and this is a persistent complaint of mine, we have so many conservatives and so many Christians who are well-educated and who have money and time and leisure, and yet they've never really gone into these things in the kind of depth that the people need, and they've never identified the authors of these revolutions. One problem for Sato is that it would not be published. Well, you'd have to publish it yourself. Yes, if you have the money. Yes, you'd have to find some group yes. to back it. Right now, I think you would. I think you would find groups because there are small groups that are publishing uh, brochures and pamphlets and articles and essays. But they haven't done the real, real job. Well, we have a few minutes. Perhaps we can go around and see what each of you have to say about the new paganism and the fact of coping with it, triumphing. Well, I think people have to uh, become much more discriminating in what they watch in the media, the books that they read. Uh, paganism oozes out of every pore from the media, from movies, from television. And uh, these pastimes uh, should not be viewed as a primary source of information. People need to read more uh, and uh, be much... Uh, more disciplined in uh, what they spend their time viewing and the movies that they go to see. Uh, people's 
uh, get brainwashed after a while. And if you watch enough of this paganism, uh, you begin to think that it's the way life should be. And uh, people simply have to draw back away from it. Well, I remember a dialogue, an exchange of letters between uh, Agee, the writer and film reviewer, and an Episcopal priest named Dr. Fly, in which Agee said that since he converted to Christianity and gave up a lot of his dissipations and so forth, he found that the people he used to like and associate with he no longer liked and could no longer associate with because he said their flaws uh, began to irritate him. He couldn't put up with it. And he wondered what this meant. He wondered whether this was a result of having converted and was it making him less tolerant. And the priest wrote back, as you grow in spiritual health, the signs of spiritual sickness become more evident to you. Very good. Mm-hmm. And Very I think good. that's that's mm-hmm. where we fit. We're yeah. talking about the signs of spiritual sickness. Right. Well, uh, it reminds me of what you were talking about Sunday. I thought maybe you'd bring it up about the difference between syncretism and apostasy. And uh, you were talking about how the northern kingdom, when the after Solomon, when the northern kingdom split off, from Judah, the northern kingdom was syncretistic and the southern kingdom of Judah was more of an apostate kingdom that had periods of revival. And it seems that that the United States is is not just an apostate nation, but is becoming increasingly syncretistic. And part of the problem with that is our churches and Christianity abandons the law when it abandons cardinal doctrines of Christianity it doesn't just become a weak Christianity it becomes a syncretistic Christianity and so much of the problem of turning away from paganism is correcting these flaws in the church because our churches are much of the problem it's not just going back to the churches it's going back to Christianity and going back to scripture they poison instead of purify yes I think that's very well put, and I think that's the problem. And some of the letters I received today so tellingly described, as one minister did in particular, the problem in the church where an indifferent kind of faith in a pastor is more tolerable than a strong, unequivocal one. They don't feel threatened by the man whose preaching is fuzzy, but the man whose preaching is clear-cut, they see as a threat. Well, God bless you all, and thank you for listening. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christ. Rules dot com